Good morning again at eight minutes after five o'clock. We say good morning to you on the Saturday morning show. Always good to spend an hour talking about our basic and most important industry producing food, fiber, and now fuel from our agricultural producers. And we're in for some probably uncomfortable weather for humans, but uh, pretty good growing weather for corn and soybeans here in the Midwest. You know, there's an old saying, that on a hot day you can hear the corn grow, and that's literally true. I, in my days on the farm, could hear the corn kind of stretching and growing with the heat and the kind of temperatures that we're going to be seeing on this 4th of July, and it looks like all of next week. So we'll keep an eye on that, and meanwhile, we'll talk about the events that will not be held this year like county fairs and state fairs and rodeos and uh, also the uh, important farm shows because this week the folks at Farm Progress show the um, show that is really the world's biggest farm equipment, farm technology show, had to announce that they would not be able to conduct the Husker Harvest Days, the biggest irrigation show in the country in Grand Island, Nebraska, and the uh, Farm Progress Show scheduled for Boone County, Iowa this year will not be held because of the travel situation with COVID-19. So a lot of things that we would normally enjoy during the summer season uh, we're going to have to remember, but we won't be participating. And we'll talk a little more about that uh, during the show today. Day. And uh, Jim Fazell is standing by. <laughs> he has an interesting anniversary today that we'll share with you at the beginning. And as a matter of fact, uh, he's ready to go at ten and a half minutes after five o'clock. So we'll check in with Jim Fazell when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Good morning, Jim Fazell, and happy Fourth of July to you and everybody else who's with us this morning, Jim. It's a good morning. And the same to you, Orion, and all our good friends out there listening along the WGN line. Uh, we've talked on a lot of Fourth of Julys before. This is a special day that we get to talk, raise the flag, and and uh, go out and salute it, and be proud of this wonderful country that we live in, and all the good things that we have that lots of people around the world wish they had. So we're we're happy with the day. We're going to enjoy it, and know that you will as well. Indeed we will, and I was interested in the note you sent me 45 years ago today. I mentioned to you on the air the lady who asked about the extension service as we did the top of the morning show. That lady was Jane, Yeah, we went on our first date the next evening. Time flies, so happy anniversary. <laughs> well, thank you. 45 years ago today, we uh, we visited on the air with her. I can't remember the occasion or what prompted the call or the discussion, but, yeah, it was 45 years ago. Time really flies, and it's been a wonderful trip. Seems it, like yesterday, but there you go. It's, it has, uh, and we'll continue to take that trip, but uh, we've got some garden work to do on this weekend, and you've had people questioning you, so where do we start? Well, first of all, you know, it's very interesting. A lot of people are staying home, working for home and from home and so forth. And apparently, uh, when they're doing their 
whatever it is they do at home, they take a break once in a while, and they walk outdoors and look at what's going on in the yard. Now, if you're at an office down on Michigan Avenue or uh, out in in the the boonies uh, traveling around, you don't get to do that. But these folks that are staying at home notice things that they've never noticed before, and they come up with a lot of questions. So I thought maybe this morning we'd attack a few of them that have come up. Um, I think you've got the first one there. Well, I've got the first one. Uh, I've, I've had a couple of emails. When do we apply grub control to our yard? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question, really. Uh, this is the time. In fact, I aim at 4th of July for the, di- the day to put on these grub controls. It's not necessary to put them on earlier than that. And if we get much later than that, then we have to, do, to revert to one of the immediate acting types. Actually, the, the grub adults are beginning to emerge right now. These would be the Japanese beetles and the June bugs, mask shapers, and so forth. Mostly around here, Japanese beetles. When you see them feeding on your plants, that means that the females are laying eggs. Now, these le- eggs take a little while to, to hatch, and if you get this mater- these control materials on now, they'll be there at the time these things hatch. And they will catch these little critters because what they're going to do is, actually what these materials do is they're absorbed by the plant and make the plant poisonous to the insect that tries to eat it. That means that if you apply those materials now, you wait a couple of weeks for it to be absorbed by the plant, and then anything that feeds on them, any of these larvae that feed on them, these little grubs that feed on them, are going to be killed. And there are several things that you can use. A common one is imidacloprid, that's merit. It can be bought under a whole bunch of trade names. Uh, uh, trichlorophon is bio-advanced lawn, long-season lawn grub control or something of that type, but there are a whole bunch of them. And uh, Grub-X, which is a very popular one. Now, those can be applied now. They will last for several months and will kill the grubs as they hatch before they can come in, become mature and begin to really destroy the lawn. Now, if you miss this and you start to see damage in your lawn, you're not too late because there's still some things that can be applied. But these are immediate acting. They act when you put them down for a couple of days and they're gone. So you don't want to use those things now. And these would be things like Dilox or even our old good, good old friend Seven. Those are the controls that you need to use. The ones to put down now are the long-term, slow-release materials. And if you do miss that, as I said, you can put some of these quick-acting things down later and you'll solve the grub problem. I notice you got some questions about trees. I questioned you a few weeks ago, but you have a question on euonymus leaves? Yes, uh, euonymus. Uh, in fact, I've had a few people that have asked. First of all, um, euonymus is a very popular plant around here. It is uh, a plant that we use in, in our landscaping, and there are a whole bunch of different kinds of them. There are ones that are, are ground cover types. There are ones that actually are vines. They're ones that are shrubby. So it's a very popular popular kind of plant. Um, what's happening is that there is an insect that's moved into this area that can decimate these things. And one of the indications is that you're going to have yellow spots showing up on the newer leaves. And if you look on the underside of these leaves, you're going to find little white things, uh, little dots. They, they um, actually will cover the lower side of the leaf after a while. Now, these aren't the things that are feeding. These are the adult males that have left, and they've left this little shell, which is white. They're going to mate with females, which will lay eggs, and these eggs will hatch, making new little scales that will feed on the leaves. Uh, the time to, to really do something about that is, is now. Um, 
there are a lot of things that can be used on them. Um, seven, as I mentioned before, for grubs is one of those. Uh, Cyfluthrin, which is uh, advanced garden multi-insect killer, or our good old friend permethrin, which is sold under a whole bunch of names. Uh, these can be used now. Uh, they need to be put on two or three times, and usually at 10-day intervals. Unfortunately, we're just right at the end of the egg-laying Period. Now, as the eggs hatch, little crawlers, as I mentioned, move up, moving up, mentioned, move out of the eggs. They move to a new place on the leaf. When they're exposed, before they make their little scale over the top of them, they're susceptible to these materials. Once they settle down, you can't kill them with these, but you can kill them with the superior horticultural oils. These are available at garden centers. You can buy them. The sun spray material are ultra fine, and these should be applied on the underside of the leaves, particularly because these are where these things hide. Now, this, these materials do not kill the insect by poisoning it. They kill the insect by suffocating it, which means you have to have good coverage so that this oil completely encloses the little tiny scale, sealing it to the leaf so that it can't get air. When that happens, it eventually will suffocate. So these materials work very nicely. Now, they need to be reapplied as you have new leaves coming out on the plant, and that will protect the new leaves that are coming out uh, later in the season. But generally, one application is enough if you do a good job with it. Now, it's pretty hard to do a good job with these materials, so I would really suggest that if you're going to use these oils, that you apply them once and then apply them about 10 days later. Another thing you need to do is be sure that you read the label carefully yes. because it will tell you. You cannot use these if the temperatures are above such and such, and I think that's 85 degrees. Or you need to use them. Uh, you can't use them when you have rainy weather. But follow the directions. If you do follow the directions, they do work. And since people probably can't grab a writing instrument quickly, I would suggest just going in and talking to the people at the garden shop to uh, get their explanation and uh, get these things done. I noticed that uh, there was a uh, message from Carol, who apparently is losing a hedge. What about that? Well, yes. And she she sent me a message that... uh, indicated she had two kinds of vines taking over a new Hicks hedge. Um, Hicks ewes are very expensive. You don't want to lose them. And sometimes when you get these vines too vigorous and too much, it's impossible to get rid of them. So the thing to do is get rid of your hedge. You don't want to do that. The one that has heart-shaped leaves and white flowers on it, this is the first one she mentioned, is bindweed. Now, bindweed is a tenacious perennial weed that will grow on practically anything vertical. Uh, It's very difficult to kill. It makes tremendous root systems under the ground. Some people say the roots will get down 10 feet. I wouldn't be surprised about that. Uh, The other one has purple flowers with red centers in them and has yellow centers in them and red berries. Now, you can get rid of both of these by using our good old friend uh, glyphosate, Roundup, not the new one that's used for lawns, but glyphosate. Now, you don't want to put glyphosate on on these plants themselves, but the process is this. You pull the vine out and get as much of it out of the uh, U-hedge as you can. Lay it down on some place. It could even be out on the lawn because these materials won't hurt grass. And you use the, the herbicide on a cotton glove, over a rubber glove, on your hand. So you soak the glove, and you just wipe this vine so that you get plenty of this material on it. Whether you're using Roundup, 
you can also use triclopyre, turflon, uh, quinclorac. There are a whole bunch of them. These are herbicides that are normally used to kill pretty tough uh, uh, perennial, perennial uh, weeds and trees. You can get them at the garden center. But the important thing to do is to get the vine out away from the, the shrub that you have it on so you can apply these materials without damaging your shrubs and and still kill the vines. It may take more than one treatment because many of these things, the uh, the bindweed in particular, will try to grow again. And if it does that, treat it again. Two or three treatments and you should pretty well be done with it. Uh, unfortunately, these things make seeds. If you see seeds coming up or seedlings coming up underneath your shrubs, pull them out immediately before they begin to get a big root system and get more and more difficult to kill. And will the material kill the hedge? Uh, it will if you get it on it. Okay. So you need to be careful. Do not get this on the hedge. Follow the directions as we keep telling you, and there goes our time. But you've got some more questions, so we'll save them for next week, okay? Okay. Look forward to it, Orion. Do have a wonderful, great holiday, and, and keep you, it safe. Yeah, keep it safe. Be well and be safe, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Jim Fazell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture here on the Saturday Morning Show. It is 24 minutes after 5 o'clock on this Saturday morning, the 4th day of July. And the 4th of July does have memories for all of us. As a matter of fact, uh, the way the 4th of July started on our Wisconsin dairy farm, I'll share with you. Because our farm was on a ridge, not a high ridge, but uh, we were away from the valley and the creek and the rivers that ran through the valley, the Kickapoo River, for example, in Vernon County, Wisconsin. And uh, we had a rather low bluff on our farm overlooking one of those river valleys. And uh, this is how the 4th of July started in Vernon County, Wisconsin, on the Samuelson farm when I was a kid. My dad would, well, we got up early anyway because we milked cows at 5 o'clock in the morning. But on the 4th of July, Dad would take a stick of dynamite and he would walk to the edge of one of the bluffs overlooking the valley and the farms below. He would light the stick of dynamite and throw it into the valley not on top of somebody's barn or house or on top of somebody. And that uh, stick of dynamite would go off, and uh, the folks who lived in the valley below us knew that uh, Sidney Samuelson is out playing with fireworks, but those were sticks of dynamite, and uh, the loud boom would reverberate down the valley, and uh, that's how the 4th of July started on our farm. And uh, we always had a celebration in the uh, town of Ontario, a typical small town with a village square. And uh, there'd always be on the 4th of July a parade and a ceremony to say Happy Birthday, America. And uh, my bachelor uncle would take me to those 4th of July celebrations, and I'll never forget one of the best lines I've ever heard, because there would always be a uh, patriotic speech by the commissioner of the county or some other person who had served in the military, and they would do that uh, on a stage in the corner of the village square. 
but he'd be under a shade tree with the uh, sun sort of covered and a little more comfortable. And I'll never forget because he would uh, say a few lines and then take a sip of water because he had water on the stage. Meanwhile, we're all sitting in the sun, in the hot sun, without water to drink. And my uncle, who had taken me to that Fourth of July celebration, said, Orion, he said, pay attention to what's happening on stage because you're seeing something you'll probably never see again. You are seeing a windmill run by water. The speaker who would take a sip of it while the rest of us were thirsting. So some memories of 4th of July in Vernon County, Wisconsin. And uh, they still do have a celebration in the town of Ontario, and uh, it'll be a little different this year. As a matter of fact, so many things will be different this year, because some of the stories that I look at every morning here on my Reuters computer service, some stories that wouldn't make news before this summer. For example, a dateline of Lovington, New Mexico. A southeastern New Mexico county is going ahead with plans to hold the county fair junior livestock show and sale in August amid concerns over COVID-19. The newspaper, the Hobbs News Sun, reports the Lee County commissioners voted unanimously Thursday of this week to send a letter to Governor Michelle Grisham asking her to amend her public orders so the annual junior livestock show could take place. Commissioners say the event can be done while following the state's safety restrictions and the request came even as the county was forced to cancel its annual fair and rodeo. On Thursday of this week, New Mexico health officials reported an additional 248 COVID-19 cases. That brought the New Mexico statewide total of confirmed infections to 12,520. And other three deaths also reported, bringing that total to 503. But that junior livestock show in Lovington, New Mexico, will take place regardless of the COVID-19 situation. So uh, as I always uh, turn on my computer, the uh, Reuter News Service, uh, the first thing in the morning, When I sit down at my desk here in Huntley, Illinois, I always check over the headlines. And here are some of the headlines I'm looking at this morning. Japan evacuates thousands of people as rains lashed southern Kyushu, Japan. And then Indonesia reports 1,447 new coronavirus infections. And another one, Russia's coronavirus cases near 675,000. The death toll in Russia passes 10,000. Oh, and then this one. Suicide car bomber hits the checkpoint at Somalia's Mogadishu port. And then North Korea says no need to sit down with U.S. for talks. And uh, the last of many headlines I'm looking at, 
the uh, U.S. sends aircraft carriers to the South China Sea during Chinese drills. I know you needed to know all that as you get up and start this 4th of July holiday. We're at the 5.30 mark here on the Saturday morning show, and it's time for Samuelson Says. I'm Orion this week, responding to listeners who earlier this spring and summer wanted to know why farmers in the United States were destroying food. Do you remember earlier this year when nearly every television newscast was carrying stories that sounded like this? Farmers are dumping milk. Farmers are killing livestock. Farmers are plowing crops under. I received quite a few emails at the time, including one that I have yet to answer. That email came from a city lady. I could tell by her return address who was polite but really quite stern when she said, with so many hungry people in this country, why are farmers destroying food? Well, there are several ways to respond to that question, but let me give you the first one that comes to my mind. I don't know a food producer, farmer, or rancher who enjoys destroying what they have produced because they've invested money in seed, fertilizer, and crop protection products to produce and sell that food So why would they want to destroy it? I guess one of the answers is they are not getting enough money when they sell it to cover the cost of producing it. But the buyers of those products also diminished greatly when restaurants closed, parties, conventions, and many special events were canceled, and the biggest buyer of fluid milk in this country, the National School Lunch Program, didn't happen because schools were closed. But many farmers and farm organizations have done their part and continue to do so to make food available at little or no cost to people who need it. I know one dairy farmer in the Midwest who put an old refrigerator containing milk jugs at the end of his driveway so people could help themselves to free milk, because that is really the thinking and spirit of the farmers and food producers I know. But we as consumers have to give some thought to what it takes to produce that food, get it processed, and get it on the shelves of supermarkets so you and I have the opportunity to enjoy nutritious food from the people who work so hard to produce it. Another response to that lady will be, food producers love what they do, but they can't afford to do it below the cost of production. Be safe. Be well. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. A presentation of Nexstar Media Group at 26 minutes before 6 o'clock with the sun coming up over the eastern horizon. Not the western because there'd be something wrong on the planet if that happened. But uh, we're going to be talking about markets and a couple of other activities that are not happening because of the COVID-19 But before we get to all of that, uh, let's uh, take a break before we join Mike Pearson and his guests this morning on the Saturday Morning Show. Jim McCormick from agmarket.net is joining us. Jim, thanks for taking the time to chat today. 
Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's, uh, we've got some exciting times to talk about in these markets finally. Well, we certainly do. Things have definitely changed. The planted acreage report was released earlier in the week by USDA, and it appears to have shaken some things up. Jim, 92 million acres of corn in the ground this year, changing some balance sheets, I would imagine. It is definitely changing it. I mean, we came in here thinking we had just this abundant supply of grain. Now you take 92 million acres, 5 million off of from where we were in March including about a 1% drop in harvested acres. Now you're looking at about a billion bushel less supply. So it tightened up that balance sheet, and hence the hot weather coming in is going to make it a little more uh, critical to watch to see how pollination goes this year. Well, that's the thing, Jim. And when you look at the uh, the numbers that USDA is throwing around out there, are most traders still assuming trend line yield at this part of the year, or are they already starting to ratchet it up or down? What are you hearing? Well, right now, I think coming into this heat, a lot of people are talking trend above trend, 180, 182 yield. With this heat coming in, what's probably going to do is you're going to take some of the top end off of this crop, but we're not going to essentially drop it down dramatically. So uh, what I think is going to happen is you, with this heat this week, instead of maybe 180, 182 yield, you're going to bring it back to trend. If the heat kicks in for another two weeks, then you're going to start talking stuff trend yields. Well, one of the things we have been talking about for the past several weeks was this managed money short position that it built up in the corn market. We've now seen, uh, really, since Tuesday, a huge move to the upside in corn. Are the shorts getting blown out? Are we going to see more move to the upside? They are getting blown out is a good way to put it. They've uh, Looks like they've blown out about a third of their position. They're resting them short just about 200,000 contracts going into this holiday weekend. If this heat continues, I would expect them to continue to blow out and maybe get to back to a neutral position at least. Now, the other side of the balance sheet, we've got supply, we've got demand. We did have export reports out uh, on Thursday of this past week. A little disappointing on the corn side. What is the trade thinking about corn exports before we get to harvest? Right now, the market's definitely a little bit leery. The demand's not there. We did get one bright note today. There was rumors of China buying corn here the last couple of weeks, uh, maybe from U.S. or Ukrainian origin. We did sell a little over 200,000 corn to Ukraine, uh, China. It was announced this morning. And that's a good sign. What we've seen from China recently is they've been selling out of their state reserves the last six weeks, total 24 million metric tons. So it's a good opportunity for us to see them come in and buy our corn because they're selling that grain out of the reserves at five-year highs and they can buy our corn relatively cheap. All right. Well, we've also seen them making purchases of soybeans over the past several weeks. Soybeans also had the planted acreage number come in lower than expectations. When you're looking at the soybean market, particularly the weird note that USDA made in this report that we've got 83 and change million acres of beans, but of that, 12 million were yet to be planted when the report was uh, compiled. Jim, how is the trade interpreting that figure? Well, I think it interpreted, it's a little bit odd they did it, but I think they took so much flack last year for trying to decide where the acres were and were not planted. I think that was a way to, for them to kind of get ahead of the curve. But what it shows you, potentially, those acres did not get planted. And there's, a, I think, a legitimate problem that could have because of the wet spring we had. That bank bean balance sheet's going to tighten up. We've already got stocks projected below $400 million. That could tighten it up and really give this bean market, bean market a boost if we happen to have a weather play in late August. So how much more can we get a boost here in beans given the overall supply and demand scenario? We've seen a big move to the upside. Jim, how much higher can we run? I think you got another, I think you got a shot at 950 is where you're shot. And then if the weather really kicks in, I think you can get to 10. China's still going to be the wild card. You know, is China going to, you know, will they, they follow through on this phase one deal? And in all likelihood it is, it seems like. And they would. I think, it, you know, the pieces are there for a nice little run, hopefully. How much is demand from China going to need to uh, carry us up to that $10? 
Yeah, to get to that $10 level, we're going to have the market feel like we've got some bean yield drop, and a one or two bushel drop off the trend will definitely kind of get them excited. And it is going to be the China demand is the key. They are the big buyer of beans in the world. But if you look at what's going on right now, we've got a major pandemic is still wreaking havoc with the U.S. It's wreaking havoc with Brazil. i got to believe if you're the Chinese, you do not want to put all your eggs in the Brazilian basket. You're going to want to essentially get some of your beans from the Brazilians, some of the beans from the United States. So I think that puts us in a prime opportunity to continue to see that bean sales expand. Not to mention the phase one trade deal. There's been a lot of political push on both countries saying they are going to fulfill that deal. So I think this just kind of helps it was a reason for China to expect China to continue to buy, hopefully. Now, domestically, where do you see bean demand going? Of course, exports, huge component of bean pricing, but domestic demand is also huge. We've got a lot of questions raised with livestock over this past year. What are your thoughts here on domestic crush demand? I am a little bit concerned about the domestic need for beans. I mean, the fact of the matter is this livestock industry is in a horrible position. The hog industry is really getting beat up bad. I've had a lot of customers tell me or hear stories. There's you know barns that are closing. There's several customers. Customers we've talked to that here guys are getting out of the hog industry as we go to the end of the summer, and that is going to be a little bit of a hit for bean meal demand, hence bean demand. So this China deal is important. We've got to get this phase one deal completed and keep China buying our beans. Well, this past week, we also saw the wheat market rally not nearly as strongly as corn or soybeans. But was the wheat rally fundamentally driven or is this just spillover support coming from uh, corn and bean buyers? At this point, it's a little bit more spillover. I, I think more than anything else, as the bean market and the corn market exploded, it pulled the wheat higher. But we're having heat, heat issues here in the United States. That's having an effect a little bit. But we're also having heat issues in parts of the other parts of the world, the Black Sea region of the world. So you're putting a little bit of supply risk back into the market. The key to the U.S. right now is exports. We've got to keep the dollar a little bit weaker, and that'll bring more wheat demand to our more export demand to our wheat market. Well, we're talking demand. It is the Independence Day holiday here in the U.S. this weekend. And uh, we expect to see some folks out there firing up those grills. The livestock industry could really use the assistance. When you take a look at live cattle pricing, Jim, where do you think we go from here? Right now, I think we're struggling. I think we're really kind of in a sideways market at this point in time. The box beef market we know exploded higher, kind of priced a lot of people out of the market. It's kind of free fall back to back to down where we were close to low in February. Hopefully that will stimulate some demand. But the fact of the matter is we're going to struggle in this beef industry until we get this oversupply of protein off our shores or consumed. So it's going to be a few more months of sideways to maybe a slightly lower trade, I fear. Well, when you look at trends, there has been a very clear trend in the lean hog market. You touched on the challenges that the pork industry is facing. This move to the downside in hogs. Jim, are the futures getting close to a bottom or at least a a level of support they might try to test? I think you're down to levels where people are going to try to buy. We're getting down near these lows. Um, Like I said, the phase one deal is kicking in. I think China is going to probably come in and start buying some of these hogs. And you're going to get to the point where hogs are cheap enough that we'll bring the consumer back in. So yeah, you're eventually going to do it. And the futures market is going to try to project out also. You got to remember, Mike, as we start looking out, we start seeing less and less hogs being, you know, barns running. You're going to see these guys looking for a reason to buy into buy into agriculture. Inflation, I think, is going to be a real problem for Amer- for Americans. Originally, we're going to see a lot of but the printing we're seeing the government, plain and simple, that tends to bring inflation. When people fear inflation, they tend to buy commodities. So, in general, that should be good for livestock, grains, everything. All right. Well, Jim McCormick, AgMarket.net. Thanks. 
And my thanks to Mike Pearson and Jim McCormick for sharing their thoughts on what's happening agriculturally from the standpoint of markets and market prices and demand. That's something we do every Saturday morning here on the Saturday Morning Show. I mentioned uh, some of the items and programs we're missing this year because of the COVID-19 situation, cancellations of county fairs, cancellation of state fairs, and also the uh, activities that we normally would enjoy that we aren't going to be able to do, as was uh, covered in a story this week in the Chicago Tribune, headlined horses stand idle and rodeo clowns call it quits as the coronavirus cancels illinois rodeos this is the first time ever that we won't have a rodeo and it's a long story but let me just share some of the headlines 40 horses are crowded around lenora calzavera ready to go to work They're not riding horses waiting for someone to take them out for a trot. These are rodeo horses bred for their ability to buck riders off in less than eight seconds. Summer is usually the busiest time of year for the horses who travel from rodeo to rodeo, throwing riders to the ground and entertaining crowds. But for months, the horses haven't done much besides graze on Calzavera's pasture in Harvard, Illinois. And uh, Calzavera, the owner of Big Hat Rodeo, says the horses are all bored to death because this is the first time ever that we won't have a rodeo. Nine of the ten rodeos Calzavera had scheduled for this summer will not go on, joining other Illinois rodeos called off because of the pandemic. And the events, often part of county fairs or groups' annual fundraising programs, can draw thousands of spectators. Without them, the grandstands are dark, and the financial gut punch reaches far into many communities. Because without the rodeo, no entry fees or concession sales, the latter of which usually benefit a local group willing to take on hot dog duty, there's no prize money for competitors who come from around the country to try their luck on the back of a bowl, and there is no work for the people who work a rodeo. This year marks the first 4th of July weekend that rodeo clown Dusty Myers won't be at a rodeo in 25 years. Dusty said July is known as Cowboy Christmas because you can go to a rodeo every day in July and sometimes you can hit multiple rodeos in a day and that's where it affects us the most because Cowboy Christmas is not Cowboy Christmas anymore. The story goes on in detail but it's uh, an agricultural activity to entertain people Uh, Just like something else that I miss, uh, too, because of the pandemic, and that is the uh, racetrack. No racing so far at Arlington Park, for example, and I'd usually uh, get to the park during the summer about five or six times. But so far, despite the fact that they say there will be the racing of horses at Arlington, it's going to be tough. So anyway... 
Last year, the association approved 28 rodeos in Illinois, but only six rodeos are scheduled to go ahead as planned this year. And uh, one of the writers said most of the rodeos have said they truly intend to come back next year, but I worry that some of them may not survive it either with a year of not being able to raise any funds. So... Anyway, that's some of what we are missing. And, of course, this week, the folks at Farm Progress Companies that put together the Husker Harvest Days Irrigation Show in Grand Island, Nebraska, and, of course, the biggest outdoor farm technology agriculture equipment show, the uh, the uh, Farm Progress Show that was scheduled for Boone, Iowa, will not take place. About a month ago, uh, Matt Youngman, who is the manager of special events for Farm Progress, said that uh, the Farm Progress show would go on. But uh, that changed this week, uh, despite the efforts of officials in Iowa and Nebraska to uh, approve those shows because of the pandemic. They said, nope, no Farm Progress show no Husker Harvest Days this year. That's just uh, two more of the events that we'll be missing. We haven't heard from the Ohio Farm Science Review, haven't heard from the Sun Belt Expo down in uh, the southern part of the country. And, oh, I keep getting emails from you who want to know if the Sandwich Fair will be held. Well, the latest I've heard from the fair at Sandwich, Illinois, is they'll make their decision the middle of July. So as soon as they have made their decision and let me know, I will let you know because that's a tradition for so many people to go out to the Sandwich Fair in Sandwich, Illinois. Max Armstrong, uh, this time of the year, uh, every week here on the Saturday Morning Show, uh, talks about the current crop situation. So uh, we'll check in with Max and his guests when we continue on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, it's time for our weekend visit with the BASF Technical Service representative who's joining us here throughout the summer, Kurt Martins. Kurt, I saw a map the other day, and it showed uh, peak pollination for a wide expanse of the Corn Belt, running from about Louisville and Evansville, up toward the Quad Cities, on up toward Minneapolis, down toward Omaha, and it looked like that would be about two and a half weeks from this weekend. What about the area that you serve in northern Illinois and eastern Iowa, the southern Wisconsin region? Where does it appear pollination is going to be? Max, I'm seeing the exact same thing. Uh, all that corn got planted in a nice, timely manner, uh, in end of April and, and through early May. And it looks like we're going to start seeing a lot of tassels here in about two weeks. Yeah, looking at where this is crop is at, it looks great in eastern Iowa, western Illinois, northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, the areas that I'm covering. But we've got this heat coming in that does have some farmers concerned because, again, this, this our, our forecast now is forcing fairly warm temperatures getting into that pollination time frame. Well, yeah, you, you couldn't tell it by watching the market the last day or two. But after the reaction to the uh, acreage report, we saw the, uh, the prices falling back a little bit. That, that's often the case. In these summertime uh, crop reports, it seems, it's uh, okay, yeah, we saw the numbers. Now we turn our attention to the weather forecast. So it'll be real interesting to see. But producers certainly have fungicides on their minds as they come into this time frame. 
as we get closer to pollination, we're thinking about our diseases. Not seeing a lot there right now, but we know with these hot human conditions, our fungal diseases like gray leaf spot should really start taking off on us. Probably big, bigger concern with our growers is the seed. We all know that warmer temperatures are detrimental, especially to our corn development and grain fill. What happens is when we get in these warm temperatures, our photosynthesis actually shuts down because of the holes in the leaves, the stomates, won't want to close up. So that slows down photosynthesis. That's bad because when we stop photosynthesis, the plants stop producing glucose. However, opposite reaction photosynthesis still continues, which is known as respiration. That process uses that glucose from photosynthesis to make food for the plant to grow. So when those stomates close, we're still burning up the food with the glucose that's produced by photosynthesis, but we're not making as much. So we have a net negative effect there on the plants. On top of that, if the stomates are closed, our canopy starts warming up, and that produces a hormone in plants called ethylene. And ethylene is a ripening hormone. It's the same hormone that ripens the bananas that sit on our counter. We do not want that to happen to our corn plants because that's going to be a negative stress response, which will actually speed up the, de- the, the development of the plant. And if that happens during pollination and grain fill, we're going to have a negative effect on yield. Now, my growers are using VSF plant health products like Veltima fungicide, counteract some of those stresses. In fact, by applying Veltima fungicide, we actually open up the stomates to help take off that ethylene stress and get that plant going through photosynthesis. So our my growers or our BSS growers are applying these, these products for two reasons. One, to get in front of that disease control that's going to start developing here real soon. And then two, to take off the stress that this crop is going to see over the next few weeks during that critical early pollination and grain fill period. When will we start to see those planes in the air for those of us who drive the rural roads and uh, and uh, know that the Air Force this time of the year applying fungicides is so important to the health of the corn crop? Speaking with some aerial applicators here just this past week, they've got orders to start getting some, some fungicides on the corn plants starting next week. So it's going to start up here uh, going in the next couple of weeks. Some folks will come up from other parts of the country to help with this task, will they not, to help with the aerial aviation needs we see a lot of aerial applicators come up from the south to help with our aerial applicators uh, here in the Midwest. So it's pretty common to, to see some of those folks, and they do a great job. Well, we appreciate the visit this weekend. Hope you have a great Fourth of July weekend, a good, safe one, Kurt, and we'll talk with you again in a few days. Thanks, Max. Everyone have a safe Fourth of July. Kurt Martin's BASF Technical Service Representative. Oh, I did get a good night's sleep on my pillow after having dinner at Jameson's, and uh, they even let us eat indoors so we didn't have to sit out in the uh, heat that certainly was in the Huntley, Illinois area as we ended the day yesterday. A quick look at markets uh, where we ended the week, and we'll be back to a five-day trading week next week. July wheat ended yesterday down 12 and a quarter cents a bushel at $4.90. July corn down five and three quarters at 3.42 and a half a bushel. And July soybeans down a penny and a quarter, ending at $8.92 and a half cents. Livestock futures, the August lean hog contract down just two cents a hundredweight. at the close yesterday. The uh, August live cattle contract.
contract up a $2.75, ending a nickel above $100 a hundredweight. And the August feeder cattle contract ended yesterday up $2.82 at $135.90.